I want to begin with 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 through 11, and we'll, we'll come back to this verse, but this sort of sets the stage for what we'll be considering. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Last Lord's Day, we began by noting that the church, or a church, is made up of members and officers. And the officers fall into two categories, elders and deacons. And we ask the question, how does a church obtain those officers? And it's pretty simple. They, the, the men are chosen or identified by the common, common suffrage or the uh, voting, the election of the church. They are set apart to the office and then or undergo the process of what we would call ordination, a public uh, placing them into that office by the church, all of that bathed in prayer and fasting by the church as we try to consider and, and take note of what Christ Himself has given to the church. Those moments of voting or election are, are really just the church corporately recognizing and receiving a gift from Christ, not picking and choosing one man over the other like an election, but a, a corporate recognition that Christ has given gifts and Christ has given a man to the church. And this is one of the two places in Scripture where a congregation, uh, we see them voting or decisions are made by, the, the old language was common suffrage. Uh, the first would be excommunication, and I think it's safe to assume by inference the opposite act of welcoming new members. So welcoming members and removing members is an act of church suffrage. And the second is the appointing of officers or delegating men to particular tasks. Even if it's not officers in, in the New Testament, you'll see the church choosing a man to carry a letter or some men to carry money. But the, the church uh, would would decide on the men delegated to those offices. Well or those functions. Tonight, we're going to look at an issue that's not addressed in Keech's work, The Glory of a True Church, but is nonetheless important to the health and longevity of a true church, and even, we, we might say, even the church in a particular area, or in the broader sense, around the world, and that is the subject of the gifted brother, or the gifted brethren as a class of men in the church, the gifted brethren. This is one of those areas where Keach sort of hints at offices in, in the work that we're reading. He doesn't go here, but I think it would be helpful for us to consider this while we're talking about uh, the, those who lead the church, the gifted brethren. And so I want to begin uh, considering this subject uh, by looking at its confessional basis and this we'll find in paragraph 11 of chapter 26 of our confession. If you're looking at the hymnal, it's at the bottom of page 684. Confession 26, 11. Although it be incumbent on the bishops or pastors of the churches to be instant in preaching the word by way of office, I'm going to stop there. What it's saying is, that the office of the pastor, elder, or the old, older term bishop, is a, a, an office of the ministry of the Word. And while uh, giftedness in public ministry or pulpit ministry may vary, all of those who have this office must be able to teach, or in the language of Titus, they must hold firmly or hold fast to the trustworthy Word as taught, that means they, they receive a body of doctrine and they are able to hold that to instruct others and also rebuke uh, false teachers or gainsayers. Um, 
in, in that, that uh, idea there is, again, not necessarily uh, what we might call the, the art of sacred rhetoric or pulpit eloquence. It, the, the point there is, can the man, does the man have an orthodox understanding of the Scriptures? Can he convey truth and can he hear error and say, no, that's incorrect? That's, that's the idea there. But by office... An elder, a pastor, a bishop, whatever word you want to use, by office he must have that as a qualification. It's a function of his office. Continue reading. Yet, the work of preaching the word is not so peculiarly confined to them, but that others, also gifted and fitted by the Holy Spirit for it, and approved and called by the church, may and ought to perform it. So the work of preaching the word is not confined to those who hold that office. It is not so restricted to the office that we would say only office bearers can preach and teach in the church. It's the opposite. Others may preach and teach. We'll go back to the paragraph. Who else may preach and teach? Others. Well, what kind of others? Others gifted and fitted by the Holy Spirit and approved and called by the church. So these others who may preach, this is describing men who are not office bearers. They're not elders. They're not pastors. But they are gifted and fitted by the Holy Spirit specifically in the area of preaching and teaching and they have been approved and called by the church to do that. These kinds of men, it says, may and ought to perform it. That is, they ought to perform the work of preaching. And so the basic idea of the gifted brethren is that some men who are not office bearers, not pastors or elders, may have gifts for preaching and teaching, and they are expected to use them in the church. Preaching and teaching is not limited to men who hold office, but it is limited to men who are gifted and fitted by the Holy Spirit and approved and called by the church. So if we wanted to shorten this, everyone is not a preacher or teacher. Pastors and elders are preachers and teachers by way of office, but preaching and teaching is not exclusive to the office. That's, that's the confessional basis for this idea of the gifted brethren. Now, we would say gifted brothers, but I like gifted brethren. The gifted brethren. All right, secondly, I want to consider its biblical basis. Because, again, the question must always be, what does the Bible say? What do the Scriptures teach? Do the Scriptures limit who may preach and teach in any fashion? Do they limit it to, the, to office? Do they limit it in any way? What does the scripture? What do the scriptures teach? And here, I'll, I'll build a cumulative and progressive case. So let's turn from First Peter back to Acts chapter two, and we'll work our way back up to First Peter. <clears throat> and again, we're just building a case, a, a multiplicity of ideas and truths and realities that, when we put them all together, we see that this. Makes perfect sense. In Acts chapter 2, we see that it's clear in the establishment of the earliest church that there are some who are to teach and there are some who aren't. Acts 2.42 And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now here, very simply, we see there are some who taught. That was the apostles. The apostles were the ones teaching. And there were some who listened and learned. That would have been everybody else. They, those who were newly converted, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or the teaching of the apostles. It was clear from the beginning, regardless of some confused interpretations of Peter's use of Joel 2 in his sermon, that everyone wasn't a teacher. 
And you'll hear that often today. Peter quoted from Joel chapter 2. Your young men, your young women, your old men will dream dreams and prophesy. Everybody's going to be doing this stuff. Well, when people were converted, they didn't all respond with, Hey, aren't we all prophets? Aren't ever, isn't everyone supposed to be doing this? No. The new converts submitted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. It was clear that everyone did not have the job or the duty or the calling to teach or to preach. All right, flip over to Acts chapter 6. We see the same thing. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So again, here we see that there were some who were gifted and called to minister through preaching and prayer, and there were others who were delegated to other ministries. We're going to do this. You guys are going to do that. That's the basic premise that I want you to see. The goal in the earliest church was not everyone should be a preacher. That was not the goal. Look at verse 7. We see the fruit of this distinction of ministries. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, very often we think, now listen, if everyone was a preacher, just think about how much the Word of God could increase and go forth. If everyone was a preacher, it, it would, we would be far more fruitful, far more profitable. We actually see the exact opposite. We don't want everyone to be a preacher because everything in the church is not preaching. We want some people to give themselves to this ministry and others to give themselves to this ministry. The Word of God increases when those who are called to do it, do it. And others tend to the duties given to them. That's what we see in this passage. But everyone, again, everyone was not a teacher. But just following that, and here's where things begin to shift in verses 9 and 10, we see a, a, another angle. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now Stephen, remember, was not a teacher. Stephen was a deacon, what we would call him, a, a proto-deacon. He was not one of the ones set apart to teach. He was one of the ones set apart to serve, to, to serve tables. And yet here we see that he was gifted with wisdom and with a, 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 an amount of, of boldness to speak to these men. Now, we could say this was a, 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 a small sort of, a, not really a one-time, but a, a limited type of, of pouring out of the Spirit upon this man, Stephen, much like you would see uh, King Saul prophesied. He wasn't gifted uh, in the way that we're talking here. It wasn't just a one-time thing. We could say that. But again, we learn... Just from this fact, that it was not merely those who preach and teach in an official capacity who were gifted to preach and teach. Nobody ran up to Stephen and said, whoa, 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 hey, you shouldn't be doing this. He was set apart as a deacon, but he also had other gifts. Not everyone is a teacher, but not every teacher does so by way of office. Stephen's office was not a teaching office, but he still exercised some gifts. It, it, it was evident. Turn over to Acts chapter 8, and we see the same thing again. Acts chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Again, Philip was one of the deacons. He was set apart for that work. And yet he goes about preaching. So the point again is that this, this, the gifts of preaching were not limited to those who did so by way of office. An apostle, a sent one, a messenger was, was specifically an office of proclamation. 
Philip didn't have that office, and yet he went about preaching the word. Then back or over to Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 21. This is the first text that our confession references from paragraph 11, Acts 11, 19 to 21. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So we have this general description, those who were scattered, traveled, speaking the word, but then we see this specific instance of, of what was happening. Some men spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. That word preaching, we would translate it evangelizing. They were proclaiming the good news concerning the Lord Jesus. Now, who attended their evangelism. Well, it says the hand of the Lord was with them. And the outcome was that a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, these were not apostles. Remember, it says that everybody was scattered except the apostles. So these were not men who preached by way of office. But they went about evangelizing the lost, and the Lord was pleased to own their ministry, accompanying it with His own power unto the salvation of souls. There was some giftedness exercised through or by these men. In these passages from the early chapters of Acts, we see a little bit of the thinking of the early church. It was clear that their mindset was not everyone is a preacher or teacher. They didn't believe that. But they also didn't believe that only those who minister the word with office power are allowed to preach and teach or evangelize publicly. They didn't believe that either. Now, somebody could say, well, the book of Acts is not always prescriptive. The, 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 the book of Acts was a, a special time in church history and we have to be careful about how we use it. And, and I would agree. Moving forward in the New Testament, helps to iron out some wrinkles that may be left by the unique circumstances of the book of Acts. And it's here that we see that there is more of a form and a rationale behind what we see practiced in the book of Acts. Much of the book of Acts is, is we would say, um, bedrock activity that then is given a shape and a form later on in the New Testament and in the epistles as practices and principles are grabbed and put into a, a, a structure that could endure the ages moving forward in the church. And that's what we see. More structure is given as the church grows from infancy to maturity. So let's move forward now to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And these are passages that we've looked at many times. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This helps us, I think, understand a little bit better how Peter was Peter's quote from the book of Amos at Pentecost. Specifically, when it comes to giving gifts to the church, it is the Spirit of God who gives certain gifts to certain people, all for the common good, that is the good of the church, and the Spirit of God as God is sovereign over the dispensation of those gifts. He gives as He pleases, however He pleases. So if a gift is given, it's because the Spirit of God gave it. If a gift is withheld, it's because the Spirit of God has chosen to withhold those gifts. And then he asks this series of rhetorical questions at the end of that chapter, verses 29 and 30, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The way that these questions are asked, the answer 
is always an assumed no. No, 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 no. In other words, everyone does not have all of these gifts. Which again means, not everyone has the gifts for necessary for preaching and teaching. But those who do have them, have them by the impartation of the Spirit of God. So we go back to Stephen, if we go back to Philip, we go back to those who were scattered because of the persecution. They were preaching, they had gifts that were in use. Where did those come from? Well, they came from the Spirit of God. God was giving those gifts. And again here, we don't see any language that would lead us to believe that only those in the office of pastor elder will have those gifts. You never see that. The idea in Scripture is that these gifts will be present before a man has the office. Think about it. When we're, when we're receiving a man into the office, we're, we're looking and we're asking, has Christ given this man the gifts? Therefore, the gifts must precede the office. The office confers no gifts. Therefore, a man must have the gifts without the office. That's the only way that it can really work. So the gifts are not restrained to the office. The gifts don't come at ordination. They must exist by necessity in men who are not yet office bearers. All right, now let's turn back to 1 Peter 4, where we begin. The biblical basis for the concept of the gifted brethren. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now the principle here is very simple. Whatever gifts you do have, you are commanded to use them. Commanded, not an option. Commanded. As each has received a gift, use it. Why? Well, the gift came from the Holy Spirit. He has sovereignly chosen you for that gift. He didn't give you a gift so that you could not use it. He gave the gift to be used. And when we see that phrase, whoever speaks, that's referring to speaking gifts. Gifts that would primarily be found in those who preach and teach. Whoever has received a gift or gifts for speaking, that's preaching and teaching, must use it. Pretty simple, right? Based on this short biblical survey, we can conclude, number one, there are distinctions in gifts. Number two, everyone is not a preacher or teacher, but some are. Number three, the gifts necessary for preaching and teaching exist in those who are not yet in office and therefore cannot be tied to the office. And number four, those to whom the gifts are given are commanded to use them. Office or no office, if the gifts have been given, they are to be used in the church. And so you can see why we would say, going back to the concept of the gifted brethren, that there are some men who are not office bearers. They're not a pastor. They're not an elder. But they may have gifts for preaching and teaching, and they are expected to use them in the church. These men we call the gifted brethren. All right, number three, the third main heading, some guidelines. We could call these biblical guidelines, but it might be better to call them guidelines produced or derived from the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the rules of the Word, the general rules of the Word. But it, I think it's obvious, most of you know that there's not a chapter in the Bible that says here's how to go about you know, the process of bringing in the gifted brethren or here's how to do all of this. So we have to conduct ourselves again by the light of nature, Christian prudence according to the general rules of the Word. So what are, what are some guidelines that help us think through this? Well, first, and, and I'm abridging a lot of this, um, there's much more to be said, but I, I really want to read a lot to you. So, um, the first guideline deals with the role of the man himself, uh, a particular man that feels like he might fall into this category. 
What does he need to do? Well, he needs to study the gifts, study the gifts that are necessary for such a calling. Remember, this is not the office of elder, but it is specifically a call to the ministry of the Word in preaching and teaching. Uh, In reality, a man can be an excellent elder and a mediocre preacher. But a man cannot be a gifted brother without some clear giftedness in the area of preaching. You see, this is, we're looking for particular gifts that are going to come out in the public ministry of the Word. And so a man has to seriously consider whether or not he believes himself to be gifted by God in the area of public preaching. He has to study the gifts from Scripture. He has to examine himself. Examine your, whether you are a man of integrity that needs to be up in front of people leading them. Examine your motives. Go through the, 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 the language of Peter. He says these gifts are to serve one another, to steward God's grace in order that God may be glorified. If your goal is to show people what you know, well, you're not fit. If your goal is to obtain a place of prominence or authority, you're not fit. If, you're, if your desire is to collect a following of people who just love to hear you preach, this ain't for you. This is what we're looking for, the attitude that says, I want to serve the congregation. I want to steward well what I believe God has given me. And ultimately, I just want God to be glorified. That's what you have to examine your motives. A good litmus test would be to ask yourself, what would happen <clears throat> if you were given the opportunity to preach, to be tested, and then the church took a vote, and they said, we don't believe you're gifted. How would you feel? Would you be content to say, well, that's, it's good to know. I can rest knowing that God has not called me to this, and I can devote myself elsewhere. Or would your attitude be, well, I'll preach or I'll do nothing. If I can't preach here, I'll go somewhere else and preach. Well, that's not a good attitude, so examine your motives. It's also helpful to ask those closest to you, like your friends, family members, co-workers, and especially your wife, if they believe that you are gifted in the area of formal public teaching from God's Word. Family worship is a great proving grounds. If you get finished with family worship and nobody in your house can understand what what you were just talking about, then you might just need to focus your attention there. Learn how to teach that smaller group. But that's ways that you can begin to examine yourself there's also the role of the, the elders who are already in place. The elders have to, so to speak, keep an ear to the ground, listening to the congregation and, and the way people are talking about certain men or if we might see or hear of certain men who excel in areas. It's our job to kind of be watchful about that, to uh, examine particular gifts. If a man does stand out, then it's the job of the elders to get involved and help him evaluate himself and his gifts evaluate his motivations. And obviously the elders would help the man as he prepares, as he moves forward and grows. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. So Timothy's job was to take what he had learned, find faithful men and give it to them so that they could give to others. They would be able to teach others also. Many times a a man may give evidence of some gifting, but those gifts just need to be developed a little bit. And it it helps to have men who already have some experience to come along and say, "Let, let me help you develop this. We're not saying there are no gifts, they just need to be developed. So the elders have a role in this, and obviously there's the role of the church. The role of the church as a whole. The church has to be watching for and listening and thinking in terms of finding out who these faithful men are and even praying to this end. Lord, make it clear. Help us to see. Send us some men or raise up from among us. Help us to see their gifts so that we will know. Examine. Then it would be the church's job to hear these men. It's the job of the church to give these men an opportunity to exercise their gifts by listening to them preach. Now this typically means an extra service or a time set aside just for the congregation. Benjamin Keach, in another work, not the one we're studying, but in another work, said, quote, they should be employed privately at first, only in the church. And, and there is some propriety in that idea. 
many negative things can come from having untested, unqualified, untrained men standing before the congregation, opening the Word of God, says it says this and it means this. A lot can come, a lot of negative can come from that. And so it's best to keep it confined to a particular congregation so as not to spread error. It also will help protect the man from embarrassment. If there are visitors, what, what man untrained, un, unprepared, or, or unlearned, he's just trying to see if he has gifts, wants to do that in front of people he doesn't know. It also protects the church from reproach. If outsiders were to come in, a man gets up and spews absolute heresy, and then they leave and say, those people are heretics. Well, no, he just didn't know. He wasn't trained. He wasn't prepared. And so that's why this was typically done in a, in a situation where only the church was there, a separate time. Now you can see this is a far cry from many churches today where anyone and everyone is encouraged to get up and take part in conducting the service of worship, literally in leading the congregation to worship. Anybody who wants to, just come and do something to, in front of everybody, leading in the worship. That's, that's not biblical. The church has the job of exercising sober-minded, God-honoring, honest judgment of a man's gifts. So they hear him preach. Then they have to decide. Usually, this is the way I think it should happen. The man preaches, he sits down. The church makes a decision. What do we think? Now that can be done uh, uh, anonymously in a way that's not utterly embarrassing. But uh, he tried. That's not what we're looking for. Um, well, he did a lot better than I could have done. Well, that's not what we're looking for either. Or, boy, I, I could never get up and do what he just did. Or, or bless his heart. That's not what we're looking for. The, the church has to decide. Do we have reason to believe that the risen Christ has imparted gifts to this man to be used in the edification of the saints in this place? And then the church has the job of installing these men. A church act, not necessarily ordination to an office. Some would consider it an office. It's not the office of elder or pastor, but a church act where the church formally recognizes this man has gifts. We call him and set him apart as one of our approved teachers in the church. Ultimately, the principle of 1 Corinthians 14, 26 must govern everything. Everything is to be done unto edification. Let all things be done for building up. The goal is to build up the church. Fourthly, I want to consider the process. Uh, we, we just covered it a little, just so it's clear what this would look like. In the past, our procedure, if you want to call it that, it was, it was not very formal, was something like this. Have every man in the church take part in leading the worship service by reading Scripture. Now, you might not think that that's leading the worship service, but it is. Have every man take part in that. A smaller group would rotate in doing the call to worship, a small part of, uh, or a small act of reading and exposition. A potentially smaller group would rotate in regular or semi-regular preaching. That, that's what we have done in the past. The problem with that, among other things, is that, and this was our fault, that there was no input from the church was ever sought. Well, we're just going to do this. Let's just get everybody to start doing things. I don't think that's right. With that process, while it was very inclusive, everybody gets an opportunity or every man gets to participate, we almost immediately uncovered many real and potential problems with that way of working, not the least of which was that it had no basis in scriptural precedent. That was our fault. The worship of the church is not the place for inclusivity or the place where we make sure everybody has a part in leading worship. That's not the place for that. That's what we've done in the past. What, what is a better process or a, a potential process for this? What, what exactly does the process look like for seeing gifted brethren put to work in the church? Well, everything is to be done decently and in order. 
just so it's clear, a man is identified. Either he himself comes forward or he is put forward in some way, but a man is identified. Step number two, the elders will talk to the man, get his thinking, then set up a time for him to preach to the church. Not in a public assembly. At first, the first time a man preaches shouldn't be on the Lord's Day morning and probably not on the Lord's Day evening because we very often do have visitors in the evenings. Um, we'll set up a time and the church will be notified. We're going to come together at such and such a day, an evening, a time when everybody can potentially make it and this brother's going to preach. We're just He's just going to preach. I hope that you feel how awkward and... Uh, potentially embarrassing this could be, because it ought to be. It needs to be something that if a man is, is not gifted, if he's not compelled by the Holy Spirit, he just says, I think I'll just sit down. This, this has to be a situation where a man says, I, I can't not do it. I must. So they'll set up a time, he'll preach. After he preaches, the, churches, the church makes a decision on his giftedness. Is he clearly gifted? In my mind, I would think maybe a, a piece of paper, a card you could fill out. Is he clearly gifted? Maybe he's not, maybe it's not super clear that he's gifted, but it wasn't terrible. We'll give him another shot. Or it's pretty clear the man's not gifted. Um, that option might be please no more make it stop or something. But the church has to decide. Well, what do we see? What's happening as this man attempts to exercise these gifts. If he's clearly gifted or, or there is some sense of gifting after some uh, time of proving a period where he preaches more and more, the church will come together and say, hey, the man's gifted. Let's set him aside and let's, let's make sure as a church we give him our, uh, the recognition of approval, but also that he himself gets that. A man wants to know if, his, if the congregation filled with the Spirit believes he's really gifted or not. So we give him that. Again, Benjamin Keach says, quote, when gifted or thought to be gifted, the church may, nay, ought to admit them to exercise their gifts and try them. Nay, try them again and again. So he would say, hey, give these men the opportunity. Get them, get them preaching over and over and over so we can be clear whether or not he's gifted. So that's sort of the process that, that would, this would take. Now, um, historical anecdotes. I thought it might be helpful to read from this book. I've mentioned many times and it, it has become a, a, a companion to me. Because I want you to hear what this looked like historically uh, in church records and accounts. How did this actually play out? It's, it's very interesting. Um, and I will try to read with, with a little bit of comment and appeal so that it's not just awfully boring, but it might be awfully boring. Um, one of the signatories of our Confession of Faith, Nehemiah Cox, that name might stand out to you. Some of you have read the... Uh, covenant theology book, which is Nehemiah Cox and John Owen kind of put together, famous Reformed Baptist. Nehemiah Cox, one of the pastors of the Petty France Church in London from 1765 until his death in 1688, sorry, 1675, until his death in 1688, entered into the ministry through the process of being recognized as a gifted brother in John Bunyan's Bedford Independent Church. And many times this would happen. A man is recognized as a gifted brother, and over time the church says, let's just call him as one of our, our pastors. He, he's clearly gifted beyond just public oration. He was received into membership 14 May 1669, and by 1671 is found among those signing the official letters of the church and was also deputed to bring the report of the church to a member under discipline. On 21 December 1671, at the same meeting where Bunyan was chose, chosen as an elder, Cox was among seven men of whom, and now quoting from the church books, the church did solemnly approve the gifts of and called to the work of the ministry for the furtherance of the works of God and carrying on hereof in the meetings usually maintained by this congregation as occasion and opportunity shall by providence be ministered to them. Renahan 
says, this was not a full and free call to exercise gifts, as the minutes immediately state that the church, quote, did further determine that if any new place offer itself or another people that we have not full knowledge of or communion with, shall desire that any of these brethren should come to them, to be helpful to them by the word and doctrine, that then such brothers so desired shall first present the thing to the congregation who after due consideration will determine thereof and according as they shall determine, so shall such a brother act and do. So it wasn't, well, I've been, I've been chosen as a gifted brother. I can come and go as I please, teaching, preaching here and there and everywhere, wherever I feel like I want to go because the church has clearly noticed my gifts. No, the, these men were still subject to the church. Several records in the Devonshire Square church book provide further detail into this practice. On 31 December 1702, it was noted, quote, It is agreed also that Brother Bowler and Brother Sanford do exercise their gifts in the church this day fortnight and this day three weeks. So in two weeks and three weeks, we want you guys to preach. At the church meetings held on 4 February, 4 March, 3 June, and 2 September, the same two men are asked again to exercise their gifts at appointed times. On 4 May 1704, the manuscript notes, quote, The church, having called Brother Sanford to exercise his gift privately in the church and upon frequent trial have approved of him as having a gift profitable for instruction and edification, do call him forth to exercise his gift and the as the necessity of the people of God require and as the Lord shall enable him. So they were they said, this man's clearly gifted. We call him as one of our gifted brethren. The other man, Bowler, didn't receive approval for 18 months. It is agreed that the church, this is December 1705, it is agreed that the church, having heard and had trial of the gifts and graces of our brother Bowler in the exercising privately amongst us to our comfort and satisfaction, do now call him forth to exercise his gifts in preaching the gospel of our Lord Jesus as the necessity of the people may require and as the Lord shall enable and incline. So these men would begin to be tested, trial after trial after trial, and the, the, the church would be saying, we're going to have you preach here this date, this date, this date, this date, and then they would finally come to the point where they would uh, determine if the man was a gift. Evidently, the church needed more time in their judgment of his capabilities, but their patience ultimately brought a positive response. On 30 March 1704, in the midst of the trial period for these two men, the church meeting, quote, ordered that Brother Lamb do exercise his gift in the church this day fortnight. So they're working with Brother Bowler and Brother Sanford, and partway through that they say, Brother Lamb, why don't you come and preach as well? On 10 August, he was asked once more to exercise his gift before the congregation. And on 17 August, the following note is entered. Quote, The church, having had several trials of the gift of Brother Lamb for the work of the ministry, have upon a serious hearing and judging thereof, come to the conclusion that at the present they believe he hath not a gift for the ministry to the honor of our God and our holy profession and therefore have concluded our brother Lamb ought not to go forth to preach the gospel of Christ until endued with a greater anointing to that work. So this guy preached a few times and they, says, they say, we don't think you're ready yet. We don't think you should be going about preaching. The recognition of gifted brethren was not automatic and was taken very seriously. It is not likely that this example is typical of the practice or not unlikely that this example is typical of the practice of many churches. Lamb was not satisfied with the decision of the church and went out to preach on his own. In the record for 5 October, the minutes state, quote, information being given that since that time, contrary to the said order, he hath publicly preached. Therefore it is now agreed that brothers King and Clark be appointed to go to him and acquaint him with his disorderly practice in preaching. We found out Brother Lamb has been preaching even though we told him he don't, he's not gifted, so you men need to go to him and remind him what we said. On 9 November, King and Clark reported, reported to the church that Lamb refused to submit to their decision 
And so the congregation therefore agreed that he shall have no further communion with this church till he return by giving satisfaction. His impropriety brought about expulsion. He was excommunicated. On 7 May 1705, this would be six months later, Lamb returned to the church, confessed his sin in the matter, and they were satisfied. In 1693, there was a meeting of the Western Association. So this is an association of churches. And they were addressing this issue. What about men who don't listen, who just go about? Quote, Whereas we have heard of some persons who being vainly puffed up by their fleshly minds do presume to preach publicly without being solemnly called and appointed by the church thereto, and some administer all ordinances. We advise and desire that every particular church would do what in them lies to discountenance this practice and to prevent all such from exercising their pretended gift, it being contrary to Romans 10.15. And also that they would not send forth any person among themselves to preach publicly of whose qualifications they have not had sufficient trial and whom they have not called thereto, that the name of God may not be dishonored, the peace of the church is disturbed, nor the reputation of the ministry blemished. They saw all of these as the negative fruits that would come from men who had not been approved, who had not gifts, who had not been sent, and yet they ran out preaching at will. Renahan says public ministry, and here's where I end, public ministry was a very important matter and could not be treated lightly. Those who thought they could act on their own needed to be brought under the regulating power of the church. This was done in 1694 by the Bagneo Cripplegate Church in London. One of their men, Brother Kennington, established several public meetings, even though he had not been approved by the church. They determined that he did not appear to be furnished with competent gifts fit for such solemn work. He was admonished and warned by the church solemnly in the name of the Lord, but gave no evidence of repentance and was withdrawn from. Recognized preachers, or unrecognized preachers, were not tolerated. And there's more. So you see a little of how that played out historically. Now, and that might seem harsh to us. Who are they to say that men can't go and preach as they please and set up churches as they please? It seems harsh. But the alternative in this day and time was the Episcopal and Presbyterian uh, view that said only men trained up in our seminaries, vetted, approved, and ordained by the Presbytery, only those men could preach. You, you had to have seminary training and professional uh, uh, ordination. And this led to some of their churches, in many cases, almost closing their doors because affliction would come Persecution would come. Pastors would be hauled off to jail. Well, who's going to preach? We've got a room full of men, but they're not trained. Sorry. They can't preach. Whereas the, the Congregationalists and the Baptists said, well, does the Bible say you have to have an office? Can there not be more men who are gifted? It's not harsh. It's biblical, and it makes perfect sense in light of Paul's question, as it was just referenced in Romans 10, 15, how are they to preach unless they are sent? They have to be sent. So, sixth heading, and I've got one more page of notes here. The ecclesiastical benefits. What are the benefits of this practice? Number one, it's useful to the church at present. Right now, it provides the church with a wide range of preachers and teachers. Number two, it's useful to the church in the future. This this concept of the gifted brethren brethren is a, a great gateway or pathway for future preachers, teachers, and even elders in the church to start and get that uh, experience. So it's a blessing to the church in the future. It's useful to the church at large in places where there is a need of pulpit supply. It's a blessing to have men set aside for that purpose. Next Lord's Day, I'll be going back to Hall River, near Greensboro, they're still without a pastor. Well, it's a blessing for us to be able to send one elder and have another here, but wouldn't it be great if I said, oh, I'm just going to stay home. We'll send one of our other guys. I would love that. It's a blessing. The church at large is helped. And then fourthly, it's useful for outreach and evangelism. It is a blessing to have gifted, fitted, vetted, called men to send out to use those gifts 
publicly. Especially when you think of the idea of open-air preaching and open-air evangelism. Well, you kind of want to know what a man's going to say. What does he believe? Is he a complete nut? Well, we know him fairly well, but we've never really heard him talk much. Well, that's, that's not helpful. Can the man, do we believe the man is a gift? If Christ has gifted this man with these gifts, then we ought to expect the hand of the Lord to accompany his preaching. And many times I wonder if we see so little fruit from those types of ministries because many of them are occupied by men who are not gifted, not called, not sent. They're self-sent men and there's no fruit ever. Well, why? Well, it might be because the head of the church is saying, I didn't send that man. He's not my man. I, I don't know that, but I just wonder. It's useful for outreach and evangelism. Uh, conclusion. Having covered this in what I believe to be fairly sufficient detail, I would like to publicly open enrollment. I'd ask that our men honor the head of the church by submitting to these principles. And so there, there should be no public ministry by men not approved and sent by the church. Now you might hear that and say, well, that's not fair. I've got gifts to use. Amen. Praise the Lord. That is excellent. Let's, let's do it in a biblical manner. That, that's all we're saying. Let's do it in a biblical way. Well, well, this church over here, they really need my help. One thing that I tell myself often, that I tell many other men, God doesn't need your ministry. God doesn't need my ministry. God doesn't need my help. But He does demand our obedience. I must obey the Lord. Enrollment is open. So moving forward, nothing should hold back any gifted man except a little time. A little time. That's all it is. Now what is the, the major premise Underlying all of this, it's this. The risen Lord Christ is still active in His church and churches. He's still giving gifts to men. He is still sending laborers into the harvest. And He does so through the ministry of His body, the church. How shall they preach unless they be sent? Sent by who, some would say? Well, sent by God. Well, how do we know that God is sending a man? He does it through the ministry of the body of Christ, the church. The power and the ministry of Christ is seen in His churches, not presbyteries, not seminaries, churches. The local church is the ministry of Christ on earth. If we pray that there would be laborers raised up to go into the harvest, then we also must be prepared to do our duty as a church to recognize, test, Train, approve, and send men into the harvest as the Lord answers those prayers. It would be foolish for us to say, Oh Lord, send out laborers into the harvest and we're not going to do anything about it. We're just going to wait for them to go. No, the church has a job. So this is the confessional, historical, biblical doctrine of what we would call the gifted brethren. Let's pray together.